Good morning. Thank you for joining us. My name is Jonathan Mers, and I'm honored to serve as one of the elders here at Mack Avenue Community Church. I want to start with a sincere thank you to Mike and Kevin and Milana for leading us in song and worship. Indeed, what's true in the light is still true in the dark. We're continuing our series called Psalms, the soundtrack of a godly life. And the worship team has helped us prepare our hearts for today's theme, which is lament. This morning's sermon is going to be the first in a two-part series within the overall series. And I have the privilege of preaching both parts on lament with the second schedule for later this summer. Our primary passage will be Psalm 130. I invite you to turn there and listen as I read verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Today's sermon is going to be organized into four main parts. The definition of lament, the passage of lament, the depths of lament, and reflections on lament. There's no way around this. This is a heavy topic, particularly in light of all that we have seen of late. An ongoing global pandemic, the totalitarian oppression of Hong Kong, devastatingly racist violence here in America. Even just this past Friday, after helping our neighbors reduce their property taxes, our sister Edith Ford found her home vandalized. As Christians, what are we to make of all this? How do we understand the tragedies of this world? If we're honest, we're left saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? I know that you save souls, but can you even hear me? Being candid with you all, I've spent a lot of this week knowing that I, as a white person culpable in the calamitous effects of white supremacy, will almost certainly be unable to speak adequately into the experience of my black brothers and sisters. Processing these atrocities this week, particularly the racial violence, has turned my stomach. When I saw the knee suffocating George Floyd pressing against his neck, I saw my knee. I saw myself. And I cannot imagine the pain that my brothers and sisters of color have felt these past few days. And yet, family, my prayer this morning is that this examination of lament will equip us with the beginning of an answer to those hard questions. My hope is that we would not only understand what biblical lament is, but why our world suffers regular occasions for these laments. That the evil in this world is the fruit of a malevolent, supernatural power hell-bent on mocking God and undermining his people. This, I believe, is the critical first step worthy of its own sermon, before we even really get into how to lament. Lament itself forces us to slow down, to take account, to sit in grief, and wrestle with it before taking action. And lastly, before we begin, please know that I have provided a copy of my notes for the sermon, which reference many scripture passages and pull from a variety of writers and thinkers. If you prefer to just sit back and listen this morning rather than multitask or take notes, know that my notes will be available later today, as will a full recording of the sermon. So please join me as we pray together. Heavenly Father, our Creator and King, you who weep with us and groan within us, we come to you now. And we come confidently, knowing that we can draw near to you and find mercy in our time of need. Father, open our eyes to the forgotten practices of lament. Help us confront the brokenness of the world and the enemy and the powers who foster that brokenness all around us. Give us the patience, Father, the perspective, the courage to lament well. Amen. So we're going to begin by defining lament. 
John Calvin once described the Psalms as, quote, the anatomy of the soul. And if that's true, then lament is the soul's heartbeat. As Mike noted earlier, of the 150 Psalms, more than one-third are considered laments. Some 42 are primarily individual, while another 16 are community-focused. Recently, many Christians have begun turning to these Psalms of lament to try to make sense of all the suffering around us. And because lament does not often play a central role in the rhythm of American church life, language that we encounter in these psalms can seem startling and rash. Why do you stand far off, O Lord? demands the 10th psalm. Why do you hide yourself in time of trouble? Be gracious to me, Lord, demands the 6th psalm, for I am languishing. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are shaking with terror. The psalms go on. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Yes, the psalmists of these laments often emerge into light at the end of the tunnel, but not always. Psalm 88's conclusion is marked by isolation and darkness. And so what we're beginning to see is that biblical lament is powerful, layered, and difficult to define. The dictionary definition that Mike gave originally is, is helpful, and Webster's defines the verb form of lament as crying out in grief. That starts getting us somewhere, but biblical lament is far more robust, demanding, and involving than that. Here's my best attempt. Lament is a prayerful expression of anguish and hope that softens our callous hearts and steadies our shaken souls. It is a stubborn insistence that things cannot remain this way, a holy anger that is put to speech, and a grief that produces a hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is to our pain what thanksgiving is to our joy. So when you think of lament, try to picture a bewildered and helpless toddler that's been stung by a bee or fallen unexpectedly. I can imagine my son Martin with a swollen sting wound or scraped knee, ambushed by pain and fear, turning and leaping into my arms before his first tears fall. He's longing for comfort. He demands to be heard, and he might even feel, in some sense, betrayed by me. And yet he will plunge headfirst into my waiting arms. Why? Because even in the midst of significant pain or confusion, my son's actions reveal to me a trembling but deep trust. And not unlike the hug and tears of a wounded toddler, the biblical depiction of lament is often coupled with physical demonstrations. Crouching on the ground, covering one's head in dust or ashes, tearing one's clothes, abstaining from food. And to be clear, lament isn't just in the Psalms. We see it all throughout the scriptures. The prophets from Jeremiah to Hosea, lamented the coming judgment on Israel for its sins. The book of Lamentations is itself one long lament of Israel's failures and losses. And the catalysts for lament in scriptures are also varied. Biblical voices lament the loss of life, heartbreak, helplessness, and sin, both individually and corporate. These laments are more than the release of pent-up emotions, more than catharsis. They're an exercise in faith. They're transformative for the believer. And when we are overcome with grief, our laments lead us into the arms of our Father, to whom the author of Hebrews says we can confidently draw near, receive mercy, and find grace in our time of need. Of course, that is because our Father weeps too. Our God, whose Holy Spirit groans in anguish within us, laments both his people's sin and his creation's bondage to and persecution by the enemy. Jesus manifests this divine lament in his own moments of searing grief. He enters into the pain of Mary and Martha and weeps at the loss of their brother, Lazarus. He grows sorrowful at the suffering of Israel and longs to gather his people to himself. He sweats blood in the shadow of his own crucifixion. Our God is not above lament. He is weeping alongside us. 
Family lament is not some sign of weakness or a failure of character. It's an essential feature of God's people as we navigate a world wounded by sin. That isn't clean, neat, or primed for easy application. It's murky, intense, unpredictable, at times almost violent. That's perhaps one reason why the Western church so routinely avoids this practice of lament. Consider, for example, our worship music. A recent study examined the use of lament in major liturgical denominations and found that the majority of the psalms that were omitted from the liturgy are the lament psalms. Another study found that laments constituted just 13% of the most common hymnals. And yet another study found that only five of the top 100 contemporary Christian songs in 2015 qualified as laments. It seems that the only, only the gospel tradition returns to lament frequently, something that shouldn't surprise us given the tragic and courageous history of the gospel genre. Just understand, family, that what we encountered in today's worship music, two songs focused on lament, is the outlier experience for American churches. But avoidance goes much deeper than just our musical preferences. Humans generally, and Americans in particular, find encounters with unresolved and ongoing pain completely unbearable. We desire, above all else, tidy and convenient solutions that make simple sense out of the complex. What we will not stand for in virtually any circumstance is uncomfortable silence and deep uncertainty. We are consumed by what Martin Luther described as theologies of glory, an addiction to the taste of triumph in our beliefs and doctrines, an addiction that leads to overlooking real suffering all around us and ignoring the power of the cross to confront that suffering. These tragic mistakes and intolerance of silence and an addiction to triumph lead to actions that, while potentially soothing to our own discomfort, often compound the pain of others. I encountered a visceral example of this about five and a half years ago when I attended the funeral of my youth pastor, Dane Burke. Dane was a friend and mentor of mine, someone who I had kept in touch with even after college. Prior to serving as my high school pastor, Dane was a member of the first ever Teach for America Corps, which I also joined after college. He was also a former Marine and an international missionary. He died at the age of 49 after an extended battle with terminal cancer, and so while his passing was expected, it was still tragic. Dane left behind his wife, Loida, and four beautiful kids, none of whom had even graduated high school yet. When I flew into Massachusetts for his visitation and funeral, Loida surprised me with a request to speak at the ceremony. And when it came time for me to speak the next day, I could barely look up from my notes. My brief remarks were often interrupted by my own tears, and I just remember crumpling up my notes into a fist before walking off the stage. Later, the pastor officiating the service preached a message centered on this notion that it was his time, Dane's time, to go. Cliché after cliché hit me like a blunt instrument. It took everything in me not to get up and just leave in the middle of this message. His time? How could this pastor say to Loida, with tears streaming down her face, alone to raise her kids, that it was Dane's time? How could he say that to Dane's sons and daughters, bearing a weight that no children should ever have to bear, knowing that they would never again enjoy him as their soccer coach or walk with him down their wedding aisle? Today, Loida has a beautiful grandchild and another on the way, neither of whom Dane will ever meet. And yet this pastor could say, without blushing, that it was Dane's time? I was infuriated. And family, what, what I encountered that day is not lament. It's the false comfort of Job's friends. Words filling empty air with platitudes that, while perhaps true in a vacuum, are so deeply and profoundly repugnant when spoken to someone in the clutches of loss. 
They are what G.K. Chesterton called easy speeches that comfort cruel men. And frankly, this isn't an improper lament. It's just not a lament at all. It's an offense to those who are in the depths of despair. That phrase, the depths, is going to be critical to our understanding of lament, given its role in today's passage, Psalm 130. The passage will be up on the screen, so let's read it together. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from its iniquities. The focus of our time today will mostly be in verse 1, but I want to make a few observations and interpretations first. Let's start with verses 1, 2, and 5, where we see that the psalmist is addressing a present and pressing crisis. The Hebrew verbs translated as cry in verse 1 and wait in verse 5 are in the perfect tense in their original Hebrew, which means they could refer either to a past crisis from which the psalmist was delivered or a current crisis the psalmist is praying through in the present. However, due to the use of the imperative verb, uh, where we see hear my voice, and what's known as a justive or command verb, let your ears, uh, in verse 2, most interpreters treat this psalm as describing a current and ongoing crisis, and they thus interpret this psalm as a lament being given in the midst of trouble. It's common for many of us as Christians to become discouraged when we feel distracted by wandering thoughts about worries and anxieties during our quiet times of prayer. Those imminent anxieties can consume our attention, and we can start to believe that God is somehow disappointed with our lack of focus. However, in his outstanding book called Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian and Nazi resistor, offers better counsel. While leading a secret underground seminary in Germany during World War II, he required his students to meditate on a single passage of scripture for two hours every day. After only a few days, some of these students began to complain to Bonhoeffer that their minds were wandering, naturally. It was unreasonable, they told him, to require this of them when they had so many worries at home. Bonhoeffer told them to stop resisting their wandering minds. Follow your mind wherever it goes, he says, and follow it until it stops. And then, wherever it stops, make that person or problem a matter for prayer. This is a powerful encouragement. Although it can be important to focus our minds during prayer, to have quiet, to pray through scripture often, we should never forget to allow our spiritual gaze to dwell on the crises or anxieties that already occupy our thoughts. God's not interested in us presenting ourselves to him sanitized and prepared. He's pleased to walk beside us through the valley of the shadow of death. Looking at verse 6 now, we see the psalmist's eventual hopeful response is active and vigilant, like a watchman. This verse paints a picture of hope, not impatience. It's like the rising of the morning sun after the end of a long night's watch. The psalmist knows that God's salvation will arrive. In his book on the Psalms, Eugene Peterson notes the same picture of hope, and he notes how the stamina to watch and to wait comes from hope. Christian hope, he notes, is not a fantasy. It's not uh, some dream. It is the active anticipation of God's already proven faithfulness, 
It harnesses our imagination with faith, Peterson says, and shapes our behavior in the present. It's the same hope that civil rights activist and theologian Howard Thurman describes in his legendary book, Jesus and the Disinherited. Thurman says, the movement of the spirit of God in the hearts of his people often calls them to act against the spirit of the times. And they, God's people, are given wisdom and courage to kindle a hope that inspires their action. Turning now to verses 7 and 8, the psalmist's lament takes a public turn. Notice how the audience shifts to God's people by the end of the psalm. The psalmist is exhorting God's people to anchor their hope in the steadfast love of God. This is critical. Here he is not engaged solely in some kind of internal monologue. Because his sorrows are the sorrows of others, his lament has a public dimension. This public dimension is critical to understanding lament. Sung Chen Ra, a professor and expert in lament, has challenged the notion that lament is primarily or solely internal. Lament, he says, also involves calling upon God's people and crying out against injustices that prompt our laments. He devotes his book called Prophetic Lament to the, books, to the Book of Lamentations, which is itself a response to the collective culpability of God's people in the destruction of Jerusalem and their collective grieving of the deep pain they experienced together. A well-rounded discipline of lament, Ra says, consists of both personal and corporate grief, and we must beware of emphasizing only one dimension in the absence of the other. So now, returning to verse 1, we see that the psalmist is speaking and seeking, uh, he's speaking of and seeking salvation from the powers. Now, the word powers isn't in there, but the Hebrew term in verse 1 translated as the depths is used throughout the Old Testament to reference the deep waters, or the sea, that represents the cosmic and primeval forces of sin and death that rage against God and produce chaos all over the world. This sea is used in Job, Daniel, Revelation to describe the place where the beasts rise in rebellion against God. And of course, this concept layers powerful imagery over Jesus' interaction with the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus' power over the chaos allows him to calm the sea, walk across it, and even save Peter from drowning in it. This imagery of a sea of darkness, of depths, is gripping when we think about our lament. The sea is dark, cold, full of terrors, and the psalmist, like Peter, is drowning in it because he faces the threat of being consumed by the darkness and chaos emanating from these depths. He cries out to God for the saving mercies described in verse 3. And although I, I can't begin to imagine how my black brothers and sisters feel this week, I have to think that this overwhelming sense of dread, this exhaustion that comes with treading this water, this lonely and cold place that's being described. It must be much like where many of you are. But take heart, family. This psalm answers your cries and the cries of this psalmist and announces that even from these depths, God hears the cries of the struggling person of faith. He's never beyond hearing distance, and his arm is not too short to save you. So I'd like for us to consider even more deeply this idea of the depths. That's where we're focused this next part of the sermon. You see, when we lament, we have to avoid the temptation to only skim the surface of the sea of brokenness in our world, or to be satisfied with a shallow understanding. We have to instead gaze into the depths, into this primeval and cosmic brokenness from which the psalmist is seeking refuge. This brokenness is prevalent, it's multifaceted, it's devastating, and we cannot lament well if we don't fully understand it. And when we start to examine this depths, 
we begin to examine our world's wounds and we may be surprised to find that the scriptural understanding of evil, sin, and chaos has always been radical and supernatural. Christian thought from the outset has denied that suffering, death, and evil have any real place in creation. They are for us just cosmic shadows. They lack any substance of their own. And as Christians, we believe that we live in what theologian David Bentley Hart describes as the long melancholy aftermath of a cosmic catastrophe, and that the universe itself languishes in captivity to powers and principalities that never cease in their hostility toward the kingdom of God. And so for us to engage in biblical lament, we have to grapple with these powers. Lament prevents us from ignoring their devastation. It demands we deepen our understanding of both the conflict that defines our faith and the hope that we have in God. And so to do that, we will really need to concentrate on two ideas, something called the two cosmos and the two kingdoms. This word cosmos, it's a Greek word that's often translated as world or creation in the New Testament. We've been using words like broken to describe the world and creation because as Christians, we know it was not created this way. God repeatedly celebrated his creation as good and very good because at its inception, his creation exhibited a state of universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It was a state of affairs where the creator openly delighted in his creation. It was a beautiful and harmonious reality. It was characterized by fulfillment and justice and joy. In the scriptures, this reality is called shalom. Often translated as peace in English, the scripture's explanation of shalom means far more than the mere absence of conflict. True shalom is, as it were, the way things ought to be. Of course, ought is the key word there. We are surrounded by reminders that shalom no longer reigns universally. Lofty ideals like shalom fall flat in the face of our experiences. And yet as Christians, we have to recognize that our world's wounds are not eternal. God didn't build his creation on a foundation of pain and suffering. Paul describes creation as languishing in agony, in bondage to corruption, subjected to futility, and groaning along with humanity, just like a mother gripped by the pains of childbirth. These deep groans came about through sin, and they continue at the behest of our enemy, who leverages the full force of death, chaos, and deceit. And with that understanding in mind, note that the Greek word cosmos is translated as world, appears throughout the New Testament. It just often has two very different meanings. Sometimes world is used as a synonym for all of creation, the handiwork of God and the object of his redemption. For God so loved the world, Jesus explained to Nicodemus, that he gave his one and only begotten son. God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I came not to judge the world, Jesus declared, but to save it. Even in its bondage to death, this world, this cosmos, bears glorious testimony to the power and righteousness of God. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power, Paul says. We can see glimpses of this good world, though only as through a darkened glass. However, world is also used and translated to indicate another kind of world, the order which enslaves creation and strives incessantly and jealously and violently against God. When the incarnate God appears within this world, this cosmos, it is to rescue his beautiful creation from it. We see this in John where Jesus is described as a stranger. 
from God, who comes from above, a God-man who was in the world, and the world was made by him, yet the world knew him not. Jesus taught that neither he nor his kingdom were of this world, and that this world hates him and those he has chosen to raise out of it. Be of good cheer, Jesus tells the disciples. I have overcome the world. The cosmos, in this sense of the word, is an empire of cruelty, aggression, violence, ignorance, and spiritual desolation. It is death working its power to dominate in and through all things, and only to destroy rather than create. It is the present evil world to which Paul says we must never be conformed, and against which we, as Christians, are more than conquerors. Grasping these two contrasting cosmos or worlds helps us begin to understand the source of our laments. That sin has disrupted far more than just our personal relationship with God. It's corrupted the whole creation. Once the shelter for all species, our world now, as we all know well, is prone to violent outbursts of plagues and natural disasters. Human societies, once destined to cultivate that flourishing in the creation, now conjure war and abuse. The suffering that we have seen poured out on the people of Hong Kong, on those sick with the coronavirus, on the black community in America, is not a suffering that was designed by God. He is not the architect of that pain. He is, in fact, working to defeat the world to overcome that world that perpetuates pain, while also redeeming the world that's tormented and flayed by sin. We should also see a world in its present state, terrible and beautiful, full of anguish, grandeur, tragedy, and beauty. These two worlds also serve as a kind of battleground for a conflict between two kingdoms, one of God and one of death. The conflict defines the Christian's experience, and as disturbing as it may be to contemplate a conflict between God and anything lesser, Scripture clearly teaches a kind of provisional cosmic battle in both the Old and New Testaments. Not an ultimate battle between two equal forces, mind you, but certainly a conflict between the powers of death and the saving love of, of God. Once again, let us refuse to merely skim the surface of sin and brokenness in our world and instead examine the supernatural realities which fuel and foster the brokenness that we are lamenting. By doing this, we can grapple with what we are lamenting, what has been lost, and why. First, there is the kingdom of God, marked by glimpses of shalom, where God rules and reigns in the hearts of his people. It was what the prophets of the Old Testament clung to. They taught that the shalom we discussed before could flow from the righteousness of God and his people, a righteousness that is best understood in social terms, where the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage their neighbor, and the wicked disadvantage the community for their own gain. By embracing shalom, citizens of this kingdom also embrace and engage the reality of suffering in our world. Of course, Jesus was the perfect king for this kingdom. He emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, washed his betrayer's feet, was pierced for our transgressions, and healed us by his wounds. Jesus' death made a mockery of sin, and one day Jesus will return to make all things new. And so as citizens of this kingdom, Christians have an obligation to pursue that righteousness that we discussed. If any man be my disciple, Jesus taught, let that person forsake all, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. God's kingdom citizens are a people shaped by the cross of Christ. We choose peace when threatened by the sword, blessing when cursed and spit upon, and love towards anyone we might consider our enemy. We don't demand our rights. We relinquish them willingly 
emptying ourselves in the likeness of our Savior, descending rather than elevating ourselves, and finding our lives by losing them. This kind of citizenship will inevitably lead to immersing ourselves in solidarity with those we once considered far off, especially those most weighed down by the world's brokenness. Indeed, Christians find Christ there, and as his body, we have no choice but to engage. And yet that is not the only kingdom in this world. There is also a kingdom of death, ruled by the powers and engaged in rebellion. In the scriptures, our condition as fallen humans is explicitly portrayed as a subjugation to the mutinous authority of the demonic powers. These powers cannot defeat God's governance over all things, but that does not prevent them from otherwise acting against him within their limits. Scripture teaches that our age is ruled by these spiritual and terrestrial thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, by what Paul describes as the elements of the world and the prince of the power of the air. And while these powers cannot separate us from God's love, they contend against believers all the same. As Paul teaches, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. This is why John's gospel refers three times to the devil as the prince of this world, and why Paul describes the devil even more shockingly as the god of this world. This is also why the devil is able to tempt Jesus with all the world's glory and authority. John even goes so far as to say in his first epistle that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. This enemy, this kingdom, these powers, use deception and temptation and everyday experiences to try and shape our imaginations and affections away from God. They bring chaos down like rain and infect us with greed and selfishness. They will remain a terrible enemy until the end, when death is the last enemy that will be destroyed. And if we're honest, this cosmic battle between these two kingdoms, it makes sense. It explains why human history has been defined by violence for so long. All of recorded history, there have been just a few sparing moments absent of any major war, plague, cleanse, or some other form of significant death. Humans have had a notion of this cosmic battle for some time. We see it in Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, in half-kidding conversations about the Illuminati, and even in modern entertainment like the recent Wonder Woman film. In each myth and story, humans are driven by their passions for power, possessions, and legacy. And the powers are conniving behind the scenes to inflame those passions, incite violence, and perpetuate chaos. And because of the scripture's teachings, we know that those horrors are not merely the result of individual human actions, but how those passions are supernaturally affected and directed. This truth is why Christians are freed to confront systems of abuse. We recognize the powers behind them. And so specific to today, it's why Christians, and including especially white Christians, must commit themselves to tearing down the structure of white supremacy. In the blink of an eye, white supremacy has murdered George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. It nearly murdered Christian Cooper as well. Family, it is the kingdom of death led by the enemy and the powers which reinforces these systems of racial superiority and white fragility. It has been weaving these lies into the tapestry of every nation and society, including our own. Here in America, it has cultivated a history of slavery, segregation, and racial discrimination that has, for generations, continued to poison American relationships and systems, and it is finding new power today. Racism is no secondary issue. We don't have to choose between the gospel and racial justice. Racism is a serious offense against God that violates the innate dignity of every human being. 
It's the kind of treacherous cruelty in all its subtle and explicit forms that openly mocks the values of God's kingdom and sneers at the promise of Jesus' restoration of all things. The powers know this. They flaunt this lie, entrench it deeper into our society, fully aware that it is an abomination in the sight of God. The other kingdom, the kingdom of God, stands in condemnation over not only the specific moments of racial injustice, but the systems that birth them. Our King Jesus humiliates the proud and undercuts the unjust. His kingdom is a declaration that all people are created in God's image, that God made from one man every nation, and that the whole teaching of Scripture depends on loving our neighbor as ourselves. Our King desires justice and mercy, not sacrifice and treasure. He searches our hearts and commands us to correct oppression. He condemns favoritism and impartiality. And he welcomes prayers that confess the guilt of an entire community, like Daniel. In God's kingdom, all are one in Christ and all are given the same spirit. And one day, our king, who was himself oppressed and who himself met an unjust death at the hands of the powers, will return with a holy righteousness to judge for the poor and the oppressed, decide for the meek, and strike down the wicked. And on that day, a kingdom made up of people from every tribe, nation, and people will stand before the throne and praise the Lamb who was slain yet conquered. So the question now is, how do we take this understanding of the depths, right, this two cosmos and two kingdoms, how do we allow that to inform our faith and shape our lament? As Christians and citizens of God's kingdom, we're equipped to engage in that conflict, and action is required, but I think to do that well, we have to begin with lament. And so to that end, I would like to offer three reflections based on what we've discussed today. First, lament is the essential middle step between encountering brokenness and responding with action. Lament forces us to pause, recognize the larger forces at work, acknowledge our own culpability where appropriate, and seek solidarity with the hurting to mourn their loss. What I've begun to realize and what I hope we all see in this sermon is that lament is essential for moments like the one we're in now. We often want so desperately to just jump into action, and yet that desire to do something without committing to the hard work of self-reflection and lament, will likely be counterproductive. In truth, this is why I chose to reserve the how of lament for an entirely separate sermon. We're far too eager to just get there. Lament prevents this. It cultivates the quiet space, the posture that's needed to stoke our spiritual imaginations and remind us of truth. And it's from there that we can emerge with new possibilities, new acts of kindness, new hope. This doesn't mean that we never act, mind you, only that when we act, we do so having had our imaginations and souls shaped by thoughtful lament. And now for a moment, I just want to speak to my white brothers and sisters particularly. Of course, all of you are my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm grateful for the bonds we have in him and how those bonds are greater than anything else that can be divided. But for just a moment, I want to address my white church family. In the context of present-day racial violence, you and I, white American Christians, we need to see our need to lament as an opportunity to educate ourselves about America's racialized history before we satisfy any impulse to act. We need to begin to disentangle ourselves from the superhero complex that we are force-fed almost every day in almost every realm of our lives. You and I encounter this complex in our schooling, where the achievements of white men are sanitized, their atrocities are minimized, and the genuine accomplishments of their historical peers of color are ignored, forgotten, or eradicated. 
colonization becomes discovery. Cruel wars become crusades. We see it in film and television, where lead after lead is cast white. Superheroes, soldiers, detectives, daredevils, champions, cartoon characters, entertainers, Emmy Award winners. Even historically-based characters of color are frequently miscast as white. Many of us are surrounded by this complex, even in our communities, where our classmates and coaches, pals and police officers, babysitters and baristas all look like us. And whenever that homogeneity and familiarity begins to change, we fight, or we just flee. We consume the superhero complex in our reading, where the author's crafting our stories, teaching our lessons, editing our newspapers, compiling our research. They are predominantly, and in some cases, exclusively white. We embrace this complex in our leaders, the CEOs and senators, managing partners and board members, team owners and trustees, governors and mayors. Their seats have largely been occupied and passed down from one white person to another. And if we're honest, we even see it in our religion, the American evangelical Christian faith, beholden to a blonde-haired European-looking Jesus, has whitewashed its tradition's history of violence against brothers and sisters of color. And our more recent haphazard calls for racial reconciliation have been as hollow as our political principles. All of these pervasive dynamics have enormous persuasive power. They affect us. They teach white people dysfunctional values that lead to the kind of violence we've seen this week. And yet, despite how ubiquitous and dangerous these dynamics are, they remain enormously difficult for white people to point out to one another, like amateur handymen examining the foundation of a house, cracking beneath the surface. To carry that metaphor to a breaking point, we should trust the expertise of the professional inspectors in our lives, scrutinize the weaknesses, roll up our sleeves, and do the dirty work together to tear down and rebuild this house. To be clear, I am not saying that white people should take on unshakable and paralyzing white guilt forever, or that white people should engage in some kind of self-hatred. Not at all. I love my beautiful white wife and children, but I abhor the system of white supremacy that affords me privilege and perpetuates injustice for others. It's taken me years to recognize that our privileged history as white Americans has run parallel to a history of pain. And it will take many more years to continue to detox from that effect in my life and in my soul. Lament is the time for this. Second, for all of us, lament delivers us from hollow or misguided answers to brokenness. Trite responses to suffering will only worsen a broken situation. But even now, some Christians have begun to teach that the world's suffering and the coronavirus has been sent by God as a judgment and that God means for people to suffer and die so that the living can learn important lessons. Only a person sitting in a place of privilege could teach this type of doctrine. This line of thinking would lead us to conclude that God ordains every instance of evil, including each time a black person is killed by the state. So let me be clear, particularly to my brothers and sisters of color. This evil that we see is not a judgment on the black community, and God is not trying to teach any of us some kind of lesson about suffering. We flatly reject any such idea as a fatal error in teaching that has no place in our faith. Natural disasters, diseases, disorders, chaos, these are the tools of the powers, not God. And while God can and does bring undeniable good out of these horrors, particularly when his people respond to those horrors with the self-emptying love of Christ, that is not the same as suggesting that he purposed it. We can believe in God's providence in all things without seeing every event in this world as an occasion for God's direct action. 
After all, if Christ teaches us how God relates himself to sin, suffering, evil, and death, he provides us little evidence of anything besides a relentless enmity towards evil. Sin, Jesus forgives. Suffering, he heals. Chaos, he casts out. Death, he defeats. The idea that we would try to impose meaning on the suffering of others and then defend God's character is preposterous, particularly given that Jesus forbid his followers from trying to discern meaning from calamity. As Christians, we take heart not in the idea that God divinely orchestrates every act, good or evil, but that he overcomes evil with good and will one day defeat evil forever. Third and finally, family, lament gives us the power to look through the brokenness around us and find hope in the goodness of God. I recognize that the sermon has included very little in the way of direct comfort, and frankly, I don't think now is the time for a message of comfort. I think we have to lament first and sit in that grief. And yet, as we lament, I want to encourage especially my brothers and sisters of color. I can think of no greater comfort than knowing that when I am confronted by the loss of a friend and mentor, or see generations of rampant racial injustice, or mounting death tolls from a lethal pandemic, that I do not see the face of God, but his enemy. If there is anything you take away from the sermon, it should be that. Our faith gives us an understanding that God is the opponent of evil, not its orchestrator. Our faith sets us free from hollow optimism and grants us true hope in its place. And it is that same hope that inspires the Brian Stevensons of this world to confront systems of injustice. It is the same hope that the Edith Fords of our community claim when they lace up their shoes and fight the same tired old fights again and again. It's the same hope that our medical professionals here at Mac cling to every day when they strap on their masks and scrubs. And it's the same hope that I have for Martin and William a hope that as they grow up in a community and church sensitive to these realities, that they will carry within their hearts a softness to the justice of God one day. Indeed, it is the same hope we saw in Psalm 130's Watchmen, longing for that bright sunrise when God frees creation from its bondage and completes his triumph over death. On that day, God will raise up creation anew and wipe away all of her tears and ours. Death shall be no more, Revelation says, nor sorrow or crying or pain, for the former things will have passed away. And Jesus shall declare from his throne, Behold, I am making all things new. Please pray with me. Father, we are that wounded toddler. We are Peter. We are the psalmist, crying out to you from the depths, afraid, drowning. Would you raise us up, Lord, and would you cast down the enemy who works behind the scenes? Remind us that you've already triumphed and that we share in your triumph. May you cause the sun to rise today just as it will rise one day forever, shining an eternal and holy light that will warm our weary souls. May your kingdom come, may your justice be done on earth as it is in heaven.